Hi, listeners. Before we get started, I have two quick announcements. The National Science Foundation, together with the Arizona State University, offering a three-week intensive methods training for PhD students. The NSF Cultural Anthropology Methods Program will be held virtually from June 26 to July 7th and will offer the opportunity to advance your knowledge of cultural anthropology methods and connect with people in the field. Apply by March 15th at methodsforall.org. That's M-E-T-H-O-D-S for A-L-L dot org. The link will be included in the bio of this episode. And we also would like to draw your attention to a special issue of Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health that is elicitating data-driven or theoretical research papers from scholars who use bioarchaeology, paleopathology, and evolutionary theory to answer questions about medical issues affecting humans. If you or your lab are conducting such research, please consider submitting your work to EMPH. Submissions will be considered for this virtual issue up until August 31st of 2021. See the link in this episode's bio. Now, on with the show. Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. <laughs> How are you doing? Living the life, living the dream. I am seeing the sun for the first time today, and I'm not entirely sure how long. So that's exciting. Man, it was like maybe 70 degrees here yesterday. People were sunbathing on the quad. It was like 17 degrees here yesterday. <laughs> there's a reason I left Indiana and came to Alabama. <laughs> I like there's a reason I stay in the Midwest or the Upper Northeast. I like my snow and yep, cold. Yep. Also, did I tell you I cut my finger like really, really bad with a bread knife? No. Oh, like I cut it really bad as in I probably should have gotten stitches, but eh. it happened in the evening and I'm like, I don't want to deal with it. And it bled for like two days. <laughs> and poor Aaron was in a panic when it happened because I'm bleeding all over the place. And I'm just like standing there with my finger held above my head and all that. But now I think I may have actually cut deep enough that I did some nerve damage. The pad of my finger, it feels like anytime I touch it, like there's a thick piece of cloth between my finger and touching it. It's, it's really bizarre. Well, having done maybe minor nerve damage in my fingers, I don't know if you've ever watched the ESPN ad. I think it's for like Geico or Allstate. It's got Baker Mayfield because we're mm-hmm. going to talk about exercise and sports today. So Baker Mayfield, <laughs> the Cleveland Browns quarterback, formerly Ohio State quarterback, he's oh. like trying to get into the stadium where he lives and he's carrying a whole bunch of bags, mm-hmm. right? And he's like, come on, somebody open the door. I'm losing fingers in my hands, right? When my kids were babies, I went to pick up all of the formula that we were allowed to get from the WIC program at one time, mm-hmm. forgetting that I didn't bring a cart and that I lived in New York and you don't drive to the grocery store, you <laughs> walk to it. So I had to walk home, felt like a thousand pounds of infant formula in plastic bags And they cut off all the circulation in my Mm -hmm. fingers and it took me like a month to get it back. Wow. I thought I was circulation or the feeling. I mean, if it was the circulation, it would like die. (laughs) Yeah, the feeling, the feeling, sorry. So I was worried I had done nerve damage and I was told I might have done some, but that it healed. 
So there you yeah. go. I mean, that's the thing. My brother's like, go to the doctor. I'm like, what is he going to do <laughs> at this point? Now it's like, all it is, is it's, it's difficult to put in contacts because I can't quite feel the contact or when it's touching my eye properly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, of all problems, it's not a big one. But today is a really exciting day, and I think we're actually both quite excited about this interview. I am so stoked by this book, which is called Exercised. Exercised. Why something we never evolved to do is healthy and rewarding. No one at home can see us both holding up the cover. Uh Uh-huh, I love this picture, this sort of paleolithic cave art, but he's on um, a treadmill. treadmill. It is pretty great. Right. So, and then the author of this book, we should probably say that, is Dr. Daniel Lieberman, who is the Edwin M. Lerner II Professor of Biological Sciences and Professor of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. I have this whole intro spiel I like to go through. I'm sure many of our listeners have heard of Dan Lieberman, but in case you haven't, he studies how and why the human body looks and functions the way it does. And though his early work focused on the evolution of the human head, uh, he now focuses on the evolution of human physical activity with a special interest in how evolutionary approaches to activities such as walking and running, as well as changes to our body's environments can help better prevent and treat musculoskeletal diseases. Can I just say before we bring him on, this is one of those books, I really love this book. And I love it because he knits it together well enough that I had a lot of epiphanies that if I Mm. explain them to you, you'll be like, duh, like they're obvious things, but he knits it together nicely, Mm -hmm. right? So the chapter 10 on endurance and aging, Mm -hmm. his articulation of aging and what aging is, is beautiful. He does a really great job because this is more for public consumption books, which we should put out there. And actually, before we delve into it, I need to put the disclaimers because I have a couple of conflicts of interest in this interview that I think are important to actually put out there. So one, Dan Lieberman is my academic grandfather. Herman Ponsner was his student and I was Herman's student. So there's an academic lineage going on there. But also... I was asked, and Dan okayed it as well, I was asked by AJPA to review this book of Dan's for the journal, and I made sure it was okay with the journal and okay with Dan that we still do this interview despite the fact that I'm reviewing the book. So, disclaimer's done. (laughs) You know, I don't see that as a conflict of interest. I see what we do as like a book review, right? Mm -hmm. We read these books and talk about them. I mean, if we never ended up writing about this, we've done the same kind of service and digestion that book reviews do do, Mm -hmm. right? And the only thing that maybe we don't do is take them to task for anything. But frankly, I think that if you just go after someone and you haven't put them into context, Mm -hmm. it's a little unfair. You're building your career on poking holes in something. When you actually get to talk to them and see it in context, I think it makes for a better overall review. If yeah. that's what you're doing. I mean, I'm kind of considering this interview part of the research for the book review, which is kind of fun for me in, in some ways. And also I can see how it can be dangerous territory as well, but I think it's going to help give me a little bit more insight into him and why he wrote this book that yeah. the book itself doesn't necessarily provide. I thought about this last night as I was listening. I listened to my book. I was listening to it. I was like, when I write book reviews of people that I've talked to, I often don't mention that I've talked to them, but I, I think that that actually should be part of the context of why Mm -hmm. you find it so impactful because between reading the book talking to you talking to other people about it then talking Mm -hmm. to them 
and then sometimes often seeing a lecture by them, right? Or something like that. Yeah. Like all that homework is in fact a rigorous analysis of something. It's what mm -hmm. it deserves. It belongs in the book review in some cases. Mm -hmm. I was thinking I wanted to write a book review after reading this only because it was generative of research hypotheses for me. Mm -hmm, right? There's so much there. It, it really does lay out kind of what we do and don't know. Yeah, the description of the mechanisms mm -hmm. by which exercise improves your immune system is right here. Mm -hmm. I have been saying throughout all my tattoo research, tattooing is like exercise. And he provides a series of ways to test a tattooing hypothesis versus exercise. Boom, mm -hmm. boom, 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 boom. Uh, also, Dan has already given a lecture about this book and that was recorded because everything is virtual these days. And we should totally include a link in our show notes for that. Right, let's bring Dr. Daniel Lieberman on. Hello. Hello, welcome. I'm Chris. We haven't met in person. <laughs> nice to meet you. Right, so we always start the Sausage of Science, the first question about you as an anthropologist. I know a lot of people are familiar with you and your work, but they might not necessarily be familiar with your academic journey of how you came to anthropology and decide to actually pursue it as a career. When I entered college, I was going to be a geology major. I was absolutely 100% sure I was going to be a geology major. And I was thinking about medicine because I was uh, my hero, really, when I was growing up was my grandfather, who was a pediatrician and wonderful person who really cared deeply about social justice and health. And then I took a freshman seminar with David Pilby on human evolution. And just because it kind of sounded interesting. And at the same time, I took the major introductory geology course at the time that you had to take, uh, which was uh, mineralogy and crystallography. And let's just say that mineralogy and crystallography in involved memorizing the crystal structures of various, you know, minerals, whereas I just fell in love with evolutionary theory and anthropology. And, and then I fell under the spell of Glenn Isaac, and that was it, one-two punch. And before I knew it, I was a bioanthro major. And then before I knew it, I got this fellowship to go to England and got to go to Kenya and ended up thinking if somebody would pay me to do this, sure. <laughs> so I, I didn't really plan it. It just kind of happened, but I'm glad I did because I really do love what I do. We both are obviously big in science communication. We love the autobiographical nature of this book. And I'm really curious how this differs then. And and, I, and I'll, I'll throw out my own personal piece in, in trying to start becoming more of a book writer of having a feeling the tension between being more scholarly quote unquote and and including that autobiographical piece which resonates for some people so i wonder how much different your scholarly version of this book is and what led you to sort of think there are several myths that we need to dispel for for this one Look, I mean, I from my day job, I write papers, right, you know, that are scholarly and they have a standard introduction, materials and methods, you know, results, discussion kind of organization, and we use lots of jargon and et cetera. But, you know, I, I've always felt that it's important to talk to my colleagues, but also we work in a field that has relevance to the general public and to other folks. And you can't just go ahead with the same organization. And furthermore, a book is very different from a paper. You know, a paper is like a work in progress, right? When you write a paper, it's like basically where you are at that point. You know, it's an experiment and whatever. But a book is about a larger idea. 
And to get somebody to read a book, it has to have drive. You have to finish a chapter wanting to read the next chapter. And I was especially nervous about writing this book on exercise and physical activity because, let's be honest, it's not a very pleasant topic. Just as most people don't like to do it, who's going to want to read a book about exercise? There's no natural story. So I figured I had to give it a kind of a narrative structure. And, you know, there are lots of gimmicks out there, the structure of a race, which you follow a race and whatever. They're kind of cliched structures. But I thought the best thing to do is just be kind of honest, you know. And uh, so I tried to tell the kind of natural history of physical activity, starting with physical inactivity, but also to make it personal because because that makes it, I think, more honest. I mean, so, so often people read about elite athletes or, you know, people who ran some ultra marathon or whatever, but, uh, you know, we're just mostly normal human beings and normal human beings are actually pretty impressive. And you don't have to run ultra marathons or lift 500 pounds or whatever it is to, to understand the importance of physical activity. And so, so, you know, I'm a very average middle-aged professor. I thought, and it's a cliche, but it's true. I, I really was picked last for teams when I was a kid. The best policy is always sort of honesty. So I tried to be kind of personally honest. And to go back to your question about myths, you know, the, the book really did actually start the way I describe in the book. I had gone to Iron Man and seen these cyborgs who were able to do this incredible achievement in a little over eight hours. And I mean, it's just insane what you do in a full Iron Man. And then I and I was up, you know, in Highland, Mexico, measuring people and asking questions. And this guy really did say, why would anybody run if they didn't have to? And here's like an old man who runs like these rara hippery races that can be up to 50, 60, 70 miles. And it was one of those little moments, you know, we do have them occasionally. Everybody who's in science knows them, but occasionally you do get a little a little zap moment uh, where you realize, yeah, exercise is kind of weird. It's a weird thing, right? And that was kind of the genesis of the book because I was at that point just finishing up my previous book, The Story of the Human Body. And that's where I suddenly had this idea that it's time to write a natural history about just how weird exercise is. Uh, so first I have to say the whole narrative portion really does make it an engaging book. Hearing the insights from your own personal experiences of which you have such a broad array of travel research and ethnographic, even though it might not be done formally, but in many ways it is ethnographic experience across the world. I really do appreciate the whole myths approach. So this semester I'm teaching an anthropology of sports class. And so much of it is structured around myths and misconceptions that the general public often have about different parts of exercise, different parts of sports, different parts of performance, all of those things. So I greatly appreciate that. But also this book hit me at a very personal time in life. And so when you started writing this book and likely completing it, we weren't really in the depths of a global pandemic at the time. And which you may know, I'm not entirely sure if you do, but I was a power lifter before the pandemic hit. And I have not been able to go to the gym since uh, because my gym is not so good about enforcing any COVID related rules. And so this past year, I've been going through this deeply depressive state of not being able to do the exercise I love that helps me both physically and mentally. And it's gotten me thinking about my own reasons behind why I exercise and the different motivations. And so you didn't write this book during you know the period of the pandemic, but I'm kind of curious as to what you think Given this new context, what your book might mean for the public, many of whom are going through kind of what I'm going through and having their whole exercise routine and physical activity completely thrown out the window. Yeah, so I got the page proofs basically just when the lockdown started in the spring. And my publisher allowed me to add a little section 
in that final chapter on disease about RTIs, respiratory tract infections, because of course at that point we knew basically nothing about COVID. And I added a little bit to the epilogue and, you know, I was able to just kind of slightly COVIDize it. I was clear at that point just how bad things were going to be. But I completely agree with you that sometimes you take things for granted and you don't realize how important they are until you can't do them. And the fact of the matter is that Exercise, of course, is a special kind of physical activity, but all of us have had our physical activity severely curtailed. I mean, I have one of these phones with a step counter in it, right? And I've been following my steps. And if you subtract the running that I'm still doing, my step counts have decreased by more than 50%. And that's a substantial amount of physical activity. And then just doing exercise has also been harder. You know, I mean, races have been canceled. And what I like to do is running. I can do that outside. So it's a little bit easier to do in a pandemic. But I also like to go to the gym on a regular basis. And I haven't gone to the gym in, well, a year now, basically. And so one answer to your question is that I think when you can't do something, you realize how important it is. And the other is that I think it highlights also how important physical activity is and exercises for mental health. Sure, there's been weight gain and loss of fitness. There's a, a kind of a whole suite of long-term health consequences of the physical inactivity that results from this pandemic. But there's also been severe mental health issues. Now, it's very hard, of course, to accurately attribute how much of the mental health issues are a result of physical activity versus from stress and the systemic racism and the political dysfunction and all the other things that are going on all at once, you know, that are all just horribly intertwined. But I think you can't emphasize too much uh, just how important physical activity is as part of the mix. And people who don't exercise as much or don't get as much physical activity are more vulnerable to a wide range of mental health issues. They don't sleep as well. They're, you know, the list is very, very long and, and we have to now practice self-care. And, you know, in the past, people didn't have the option to not be physically active. And now in this modern world in general, we have to choose to be physically active, aka exercise. But in the pandemic, boy, did you, you just turn the dial up to 11, right? You know, like mm-hmm. in that movie, Spinal Tap, the inertia you have to overcome now to be physically active is even greater. And mm-hmm. so I think it almost in a way, to me, heightens some of the basic messages in the book, the pandemic, and, and hopefully it'll be of some utility. We've been trying to collect data actually on just how important physical activity is for vulnerability to COVID. And there's oh. now finally some data emerging and the effects are staggering. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully they'll be published soon, but it's staggering. So two things with that. One, the whole mental health aspect, uh, a collaborator and I, uh, she's a cultural anthropologist, Katie Rosage-Menick, she and I have completed a big survey-based study on COVID and exercise routine disruption. And a very interesting thing you said lines up exactly with what we found. We kind of analyzed people who use gyms for weightlifting in particular versus those who were runners and more cardiovascular and did some assessments of perceived mental health. And the folks who have used gyms for weightlifting have fared so much worse than the endurance folks and the language they use, it's devastating to read. But also if you're willing to give a little bit of a preview for that article, when you're talking about the extreme effects with COVID and exercise, what directionality are you talking about? Preventative effects or how COVID is really harming somebody's ability oh, to exercise? massively preventive, massively yeah. preventive. And, and, you know, I have a little section in the book. I mean, we already know some of the basics in terms of how the immune system functions. So physical activity upregulates really key arms of the uh, of the innate immune system. So you produce more natural killer cells and cytotoxic T cells 
both of which are your first arm of defense against virus infected cells. And furthermore, not only do you produce more of these things, but you also redeploy them to areas of the body that are more vulnerable to respiratory infections. So, you know, the mucus lining of the respiratory tract being the prime example. So it's unsurprising that, you know, you're much less vulnerable to getting infected when you're being physically active. COVID is no different, right? And we know the mechanism. It would be very surprising if it was otherwise. We also know that um, physical activity, especially cardio physical activity, upregulates the adaptive immune system too. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that people, especially as you get older, that exercising around the time you get an immunization actually improves the efficacy of that immunization. You know, all the mechanisms are entirely understood, but so both arms of the immune system are helped by exercise. There's no question of it. The one debate that's out there is, you know, to what extent can too much exercise be bad for you? That's called the open window hypothesis. Interestingly, there's not actually a lot of really good data to support the open window hypothesis. It might be true. It's best to be a little bit cautious and I wouldn't throw caution to the wind and, you know, run marathons every day to improve my health because uh, after all, that is a lot of energy you're expending, <laughs> which is not going to your immune system. But, you know, there's so few people out at that, uh, that level of extreme exercise that the data are really poor. There's just not a lot of information. That's a great segue for the anecdote that you tell. Now, you tell so many great ones, and I've already relayed one to my students when I talk about you don't have to be the fittest. Usain Bolt will run out of energy, but when he runs out of energy, the hyenas will already be eating Dr. Lieberman, right? So that, <laughs> that was one beautiful one. But the other one, the one that I really like, Kara alluded to at the beginning, you talk about two Donalds, and then you talk about the in-between. I wonder if you could summarize that story really quickly for us, and then link it to the costly repair hypothesis and what that really means. That's importantly buried in chapter 10. Thank you. Yeah, you know, in a way, it's probably the most important chapter in the book. And, and you're right, it is sort of buried in the end of the book, but it's just where it fit sort of intellectually and logically. But yeah, so, you know, people often think of exercise as a magic bullet, right? And one of the myths that I wanted to dispel is that it's not a magic bullet. It reduces your probability of getting disease, but it's not going to necessarily prevent you from getting sick. And so I kind of in a naughty way at the beginning of that chapter compare two people named Donald who were born around the same time, one, of course, being Donald Trump, who famously doesn't like to exercise and actually thinks that every time you exercise, you're using up energy like a battery with uh, another famous Donald from the exercise world, a guy named Donald Ritchie, who was one of the world's great long distance runners. I mean, he's one of these crazy people who did like, how far can you run in 24 hours, which sounds like utter madness to me. Or he, he set a record running from the top of England to the bottom of England, you know, that sort of thing. And he died in his seventies of actually a an autoimmune kind of diabetes, a type 1 diabetes, an adult type 1 diabetes, which is kind of rare. I mean, it just goes to show that you cannot exercise and live to be a ripe old age, and you can exercise a lot and still die prematurely. But that said, the evidence is clear, right? And there's many, many, many epidemiological studies, not to mention mechanistic studies, which show that as we get older, the older we get, the more important exercise is. And the very first really big study to show that was actually done on Harvard alumni. It's the Harvard alumni study done by Ralph Paffenbarger. And the study is actually still going on. I've been talking to the Iman League, who's continuing the study. And he took advantage of the fact that universities are really good at keeping track of their alums, especially places like Harvard that want as much money as possible, right? So, so they're constantly emailing every alum, asking them for money. And he realized, well, there's a great way to, to take advantage of this system. And also you have a kind of a control population, so you can control for socioeconomic status and things like that. So he basically got the alumni office to let him survey alums from, I think, three different classes over a very long period of time 
figured out what their physical activity levels were and also what their health outcomes were. Because, you know, a lot of them died, right, over the course of the umpteen years that he studied them. And he was able to come up with the first good dose response curve that looks at the relationship between how much exercise you do. The famous New England Journal of Medicine paper, he looks at calories per week, but, you know, there are other ways of analyzing the data and then divide them up into different age categories. And basically, if you're under 50 and you were doing 2000 calories a week, which is, you know, a moderate amount of exercise, but not a crazy amount of exercise, right? That's going for like four or five runs a week, you know, four or five miles each, right? Those folks had like 20% lower mortality rates. So these are age-adjusted mortality rates. But by the time alums got into their 70s, the ones who were doing that kind of level of physical activity had more than 50% lower mortality rates. That's huge, right? And we often don't think so much because we think about as you get older, it's time to take it easy, right? It's time to retire, go to Florida, put your feet up, you know, take it easy, right? And, but of course, anthropologists, all of us teach our students about the grandmother hypothesis and how humans evolved to live past reproductive age because we're foraging and helping and passing on information and all kinds of things to the next generations. But physical activity is a major part of that. And the reason why that's so important is that when we're physically active, we generate stress. Like when Kara lifts her huge weights, right? She's generating all kinds of stress. She's stressing her muscles. She's stressing her bones. She's also creating reactive oxygen species. She's causing proteins to get denatured. I mean, who knows what's going on, right? And all of those stresses turn on repair and maintenance responses, all of them. And they're well studied. And those repair and maintenance responses don't diminish with age. So we produce antioxidants, abundant antioxidants. We produce enzymes that repair DNA. We produce enzymes that get rid of denatured protein. And that's, I argue, an important component of why physical activity is so important as we age. In fact, we're sometimes mixing the cause and consequence of aging. We not only evolved to live a long time, but we evolved to be physically active, which helps us live a long time. I mean, I love all of this. And these are things that I talk about in my classes, wide ranging, whether it's anthropology, sports or not. But one thing that comes up a lot relating to your work in particular with physical activity is the barefoot running. I always have students who ask about the Vibram's five fingers and what do I think about it? And I always talk about your work. And there's always the big caveat of don't buy them and just go out and run like a half marathon. You will do extreme damage to yourself by just jumping like Chris has done. And, you know, you talk about this a little bit in the book where you talk about how you might have a little bit of blame that the paleo movement says we are now born to run long distances barefooted. And so we were hoping you could maybe walk us through of what got you interested in barefoot running and kind of how your views have evolved on that topic over time. Yeah, the whole thing was an eye-opening experience, to put it this way. So it all started, I guess, when Dennis Bramble and I wrote a paper in Nature in 2004. It was the cover article in Nature on the endurance running hypothesis that humans evolved to run long distances. And Nature put the title Born to Run on the cover, which, with my blessing, I mean, I thought that was a great idea because I like Bruce Springsteen. I actually have a Born to Run over my office door, the Bruce Springsteen cover album. But anyway, it was kind of amazing when that paper came out because, you know, when you publish paper in Nature, it's going to be a big hit and it's a cover article. You're, you, but I had no clue. We were not prepared for the response to that paper. It was pretty intense. But soon after, this is a true story, if you don't mind my telling the story, but the next year I was asked to give a lecture at the Boston Marathon. And that was a year when a nor'easter came in right before the Boston Marathon. It was an incredible wet storm and there was a packed audience and there was a guy sitting in the front row who I thought was like a homeless person who'd come in from the street and he had on socks wrapped in duct tape and he had suspenders. It looked kind of a little odd. And after the lecture... He came up to me and he said, well, yeah, how come I don't like to wear shoes? Without kind of just like a knee-jerk reaction, I said, well, you know, I'm evolved to run barefoot, so what's the big deal? And then I thought, but, you know, I don't really know much about barefoot running. So I 
I asked him, it turns out he owns a, a store in the area. He's a Harvard dropout who, uh, by his own admission, probably did a little bit too much LSD and stuff like that. But anyway, he came into the lab a few days later. So we invited him to the lab and he came into the lab and he was wearing one of those Victorian bathing suits, you know, with the stripes, you know, the one piece Victorian bathing suits. And, and we had him run across the force plate and you know, at the time we were studying head stabilization. In fact, we had a paper that just came out a few days ago on head stabilization in the AJPA. This was actually a precursor to that experiment. And we were looking at you know, when you hit the ground and land on your heel, this is a shockwave that travels up your body and it causes your head to jiggle. And we had a few graduate students and postdocs and you know people in the department who didn't land on their heel and they were ruining the experiment because they would forfeit strikers and their heads didn't jiggle as much and I was really irritated by those people because they were like you know screwing up the experiment and I didn't really quite know what was going on and then this guy comes along in his bathing suit he runs just lightly and gently across the force plate with no impact peak and I was thought was normal and you know so I didn't jiggle and not any of that stuff and I asked him I said do you ever land on your heel? He said, no, it hurts. Nobody lands on their heel. I was like, okay. And so we started studying barefoot runners and we started working on the mechanics and working out the biomechanics of impulse momentum, whatever. And we ended up going to the field and all that sort of stuff. And before we knew it, we were writing about barefoot running and, and that helped, of course, spur the barefoot running movement, which was also instigated by this book, Born to Run, which got sort of started, I guess, in my lab, but not that I agree with everything in that book, I don't. And of course, it just became a crazy fad. And I've always maintained from the very beginning that what really matters is how you run, that's what's on your feet, but what's on your feet can affect how you run. But the way it was sold was that it's like this magical solution, right? You take off your shoes and voila, you'll suddenly run perfectly and you'll have no problems and your teeth will be whiter and you know, people you'll be attracted to will dig you more and whatever myth you wanna come up with, and it was kind of exciting and heady, but also nerve wracking. And I would find myself arguing with a lot of people from both sides. So I found myself arguing with the shoe company folks who were defending cushioned shoes and saying that barefoot running is evil and bad and strange and nobody should ever do it. And I was also arguing with the barefoot running folks who were basically saying that, you know, any shoe is like a coffin and shoes are bad. And, you know, you're like a capitalist tool if you wear a shoe and whatever. And I was like more interested in the mechanics and the injury and the data. And we did a study on the Harvard track team and, you know, who are not barefoot, but they were the ones who were forefoot strikers had much lower injury rates than the ones who were heel strikers and blah, 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 blah. But it was eye-opening because I really learned that what happens in scientific information is that you do some serious research, you put in all the appropriate caveats, you try to be careful about what you say, and then you lose control the second it leaves your door. And in the way in which science is often conveyed to the public is as a debate between one extreme versus another extreme. And that's part of the, what makes people so confused. And that's one of the reasons why I entitled this book Exercised, because I think people are confused and they're anxious and they're nervous about exercise. And part of it is the way in which the information is conveyed to them. Like, why can't we tell people that sitting is not the same thing as a cigarette or that you have to sleep eight hours a night or whatever? It's true that too much sitting is bad for you. And it's true that not enough sleep is good for you. But we kind of become so extremist in our views. We don't trust people with the actual real information, the subtleties, the nuances, the complexities, because biology is complicated and there's variation. How you and I are going to react to the same thing is going to be different because we have different phenotypes because of partly because of different genotypes and different environmental experiences and all those complexities. And why can't we be honest to people? And so really that's why actually each chapter of the book, I just thought, what. Well, I would pick a myth, right? And the chapters are not about those myths, but those myths are relevant to those chapters because there's so many, as Kara was saying earlier, there are so many myths about exercise. Our job as academics, as anthropologists, as evolutionary biologists is to try to reintroduce some of the more complicated, but not too complicated information that people need. 
So again, beautiful segue. Love this. I have triplet boys that are 18 almost, and I try to model appropriate behavior, like going out and trying barefoot running and coming back with bruises on my heels from hitting pebbles. And my kids have carried me off of the tennis court, the soccer field. I get injured all the time. So when I argue with them that they've become the pajama people, there's a meme about pajama people, these kids that sit around and play video games all the time. My kids, they can log like we do on our fitness trackers, the number of hours they spend on any given game and literally wear pajamas all the time before COVID. So I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on, on the esports movement um, that is motivating, maybe, maybe motivating kids to be less active. You know, I don't know. I mean, look, any kind of physical activity, if it happens to be, you know, one of those games that you play in front of a TV that makes you move around, you know, that's, if it's your boat, that's fine. Right. But you know, I don't know to what extent your kid's pajama exercise actually is sort of sedentary. It involves a lot of cursing and it does involve some upper body movements in chairs like this. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the sad thing is that we are so glued to our TVs. Right. You know, and that means that when we're glued to our TVs, more often than not, our butts are glued to our chairs. Right. So there is a price to pay for that. The data show that, for example, for sitting, that the epidemiological data showed that the real curse of sitting is not so much work time sitting. It's actually leisure time sitting. So studies show there's been studies in Denmark and studies in Japan and, and studies in the U.S. and elsewhere all actually distinguish between leisure time sitting and work time sitting and find it's really the leisure time sitting, which is much more strongly associated with negative health outcomes. And that makes sense because if you're working, you know, at a desk you know, for a fair amount of the day and then you go home and you then send the rest of the evening plopped in front of a TV and you're sitting in a car to get to work and you know we know all the ways in which we sit right um, that means you're never getting any physical activity so there's a trade-off there of course you can't sit all day long and you can't exercise all day long you know populations we work in the villages in mexico and in kenya and there's the work that dave reichlin and herman published on the hadza that was around 10 hours a day which is my experience having visited them there's nothing wrong with sitting but if that's all you do yes you do pay a price and and there, of course there are better and worse ways of sitting and there's again lots of epidemiological data we now have anthropological data again thanks to dave reichlin that more active sitting tends to be associated with fewer negative health outcomes. So I guess your kids sitting is probably pretty active when they're playing those games. So at least that's good, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. But I don't think you need to be a PhD to know that it's good to get out and run around rather than just sit on a couch. We have a healthy debate about it and they definitely get exercised in the way that you suggest about my paternalistic uh, desires to get them off games and moving more. But, and they mock me for sitting on the exercise ball when I'm in front of the television. But it does, I think, reinforce, I would say, the most fundamental argument of the book, which is that we evolved to be physically active for two reasons, right? One, when it's necessary, and the other, when it's socially rewarding. And sometimes you have to make it necessary. That's why we have mandatory physical ed in schools, right? Because sometimes you need to get kids off their butts, right? I mean, most of the time they enjoy it, right? And so the best solution is to make it necessary and rewarding and not mm -hmm. more rewarding, right? And that's a challenge, especially in the pandemic when it's harder and harder to do it outside. I think we should treat exercise like education. I get that's again one of the key arguments in my book that education is just as weird as exercise, right? Nobody read until a few thousand years ago on the planet. Now it's near universal literacy, but that's a very strange modern behavior too. We all think it's useful and worthwhile, but we have to kind of force our kids to do it at first, or at least most kids. And to do that, we make it necessary and rewarding. And so I don't think there's really much difference. 
Yeah, there's a whole lot trying to figure out the intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations for exercise. And it often seems like public health initiatives are focused on that extrinsic, uh, you know, the health, you're going to be much better health, rather than thinking about that social and psychological aspect that would more intrinsically motivate somebody to actually move forward with exercise. But anyway. But to add to that, I mean, what we've done is we've medicalized it and we've mm. commercialized it, right? Oh, so medicine. exercise <laughs> is medicine, right? We pay for it, right? It's industrialized. It's, you go to the gym, you, you use a treadmill, you know, you buy weights whose sole purpose is to be lifted. We buy athleisure, you know, special clothes to, in which to exercise. And that works for some people, but it doesn't work for most people. And it makes you think that if they're going to medicalize it, then insurance should cover my gym membership <laughs> and migrates, all of that. Anyway, so, but, I mean, Chris was talking about, you know, the personal aspect with pajama people. And then for me, again, as a power lifter, I often feel like weightlifting and anaerobic exercise is often kind of shoved aside in research and focus, at least anthropologically, is always so much more on endurance. And I get it, but that doesn't mean I don't feel slighted personally. <laughs> so first, I want to thank you for including a chapter on strength, because it really is largely ignored. And within exercise physiology, you know this, women are basically not studied at all when it comes to strength sports. And I find that deeply, deeply upsetting. Anyway, so one, thank you. But two, you also have a chapter on sports, and especially aggressive sports. And we were kind of wondering what your thoughts were on the more aggressive sports, such as football, and we're seeing this with ice hockey now as well, of implementing a greater variety of rules and much more strict punishments to try to minimize injury among players. Just kind of your thoughts on that trajectory. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, one of the myths is that sports equals exercise, right? Mm. And you know, I think people who've studied the anthropology of sports, and you're one of them, Kara, you have long recognized that sports play many, many roles. And exercise is really pretty small in most cultures, right? It teaches skills, it, it builds capacities. But very importantly, it's about social relationships, right? Sports is really about who we are as human beings. And so I got really interested in Richard Wrangham's idea about reactive and proactive aggression, because I started thinking about, you know, being a good sportsman or sportswoman. And what does that involve? right and and why do we have sports why is it you know human universal and i think one of the reasons is teach kids that if the other team scores a goal you don't punch them right you know that's not acceptable but there's another component to exercise to professional exercise which is that it's also entertainment right when you watch a football team or a hockey team you go knowing that people are going to beat each other up and that's part of for, for some people part of the fun and so there's this tension between good sportsmanship and also preventing injury. So we see this constant back and forth in professional sports. You know, how far can they go without going too far? Because there's money to be made. Mixed martial arts is another example. For my book, actually, I went and watched <laughs> some mixed martial arts competitions just to kind of get more of a sense of what it's like. It's too complicated an issue to resolve in a short discussion, but I think it highlights just how much sports is about aspects of social life that are unrelated to physical activity. I love that chapter. And Kara and I, we've had this short conversation repeatedly. And part of it is because we're both at major football schools and Kara actually gets the football players in her class. They don't come to anthropology at the University of Alabama, but we are talking about athletes whose athletic prowess and other skill sets are being transformed formed or providing opportunities for the social mobility through the entertainment avenue to be rich, famous, and have sort of social mobility. So Kara actually gets to talk to these folks. And I wonder if there's a moral 
ethical responsibility to sort of tease out these cultural dilemmas that we're having. And I guess what we're asking you is for help in figuring it out. Do you have any thoughts on that? First of all, my understanding is that the vast majority of students who do college athletics don't end up benefiting that much from the college athletics. And actually, a lot of them get harmed. We we published a paper showing that by the end of their freshman year, football players at Harvard, who by American football standards probably aren't very, very big, I'll probably get in trouble. I might come it. try out for the team. I might be your star <laughs> player. <laughs> but, um, but by the end of their freshman year, they're already hypertensive. They're already pre-hypertensive because of the weight gain and the lack of cardio. They're not doing cardio. And, you know, there's evidence that they're paying a price in terms of not just concussions, but also heart disease and 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 whatever. So it, that's in some sports, not all sports. So, and furthermore, in, in schools like mine, elite Ivy League schools, with the exception of just a few sports, the vast majority of athletes in sports are whiter and richer than the rest of the student body, right? Because to get all those lacrosse lessons or hockey time in the morning and all those other things, your parents have to be able to shuttle you around and get you from game to game and all that. It, it's actually a backdoor for privilege in many schools. That's not true of every school and every sport. It's obviously a complex landscape. So I'm all in favor of physical activity in schools, but I think by focusing it so much on athletics and competition and sports as opposed to fitness and whatever, we're distorting our academic missions in order to make money rather than to actually do what's best for students and society as a whole. I think the pandemic has put a very bright, hot spotlight on that this past fall, especially looking at how COVID infections went rampant through football teams and, you know, the very long-term and real health complications this might have for them in their career. And like Chris said, I had a fair number of football players last semester. And when I showed them the statistics of how many folks actually end up in the NFL from college, which is this tiny, tiny percentage, and then how long the average career actually lasts versus when NFL benefits actually kick in, which is like a month after the average career life. (laughs) No one told them these things in their college career. And then the long-term damage it does, not just physically, but economically and socially for the rest of their lives. That often feels like the most important thing I do in that class is kind of shedding a light on how it is an industrial complex that is making money off their bodies. And it's, it's distressing. Well, I would say another distortion that occurs from the industrialization and commercialization of athletics is the bias that comes when you watch elite athletes and top athletes I think it's akin to our our focus on supermodels, right? That you get a kind of distorted view of beauty and health and what's normal from supermodels. And I think we get a distorted view of sort of what's a normal human athletic endeavor from watching elite athletes. And I also do wonder to what extent there's a kind of vicarious effect too, right? If you watch a football game, are you less likely to then go out and do something? You've kind of used up that part of your brain, right? Uh, Look, every university in the country used to have physical education because it was recognized that physical activity, whether they did it right or wrong, it's another issue, but but physical activity is important for mental health and for long-term physical health and the habits that you develop in school, you carry on for the rest of your life. And that was all that was sort of dropped in the 1970s. And now most universities either have no physical activity requirements or they're very, very, very minimal. And I would argue that part of the price that we have paid for is the physical inactivity among sort of post-college individuals. How to measure that effect is really hard. You can't do the randomized control experiment, so it's very hard to actually measure that, but I'm sure there's an effect. None of our grad students have seen each other in forever, and I haven't seen some of our grad students. And I proposed a Friday, I didn't call it Friday Fitness, but 
I invited the entire anthropology department to join us for tennis on Friday and then a jog run next week and then biking. And it didn't even occur to me that it's because I've been reading your book. So I want to thank you for that impact. Everybody's super excited. And it also reminds me of your other anecdote about the, I think it was an overweight PE teacher who ended up having an unfortunate demise and you only remember him berating you. <laughs> it, was, it was our health education teacher, right? I had forgotten that part was in the book. Yes. He, um, he was this sort of stout fellow who walked around the room telling us that how bad marijuana was and whatever. And he died during the semester we were taking health education. Yeah, it was from a heart attack. And, and it made me, it reminded me of the best players on my high school soccer team were the guys who would smoke weed and then take speed. And then they would come and they would dribble around everyone and not pass the ball. And we got super mad at them. And I don't have a question. I just, it just reminded me of another funny anecdote about like separating out what it is you're talking about when you're communicating with students. If you had to summarize your book in one big takeaway that somebody reading it should come away from that book with, what would that be? We evolved to be physically active to a moderate extent, but not a crazy amount. But we never evolved to do unnecessary, discretional, voluntary physical activity unless it was either necessary or fun. And today in the modern world, when we now have machines that do all our work for us, we have to do something really weird. We have to choose to be physically active for our both our mental health and our physical health. And it's worth it. But let's not be uncompassionate. Let's not shame people and blame people for their instincts. Let's instead help each other. And we're not going to succeed by simply prescribing it or shaming people or blaming people or telling them that they're lazy if they don't want to exercise. They're not being lazy. They're being normal. <laughs> and, and, and we need to help them. You know, there's such a lack of compassion. And so that's really, ultimately, that's what the book is about. I hope that an evolutionary and anthropological perspective can help us do a much, much, much better job of helping each other rather than being exorcists, you know, people who nag and brag about exercise. It's such a comfortable and reasonable message and is intuitively satisfying. And it suggests that most humans, by and large, are already on the right track without needing to be told. And I really appreciate that. I guess, check back from the paleo movement, check back from the exercise movement. Like humans have done fine, by and large, hence our large population size. I agree. <laughs> So what's next? What's on the horizon for you, Dan? You have another book in the works or working on more papers, more new projects? It's been tough with the pandemic. Work in the lab is, hasn't ground to a halt, but it's like it going at half speed, maybe slightly less than half speed. It's just really hard to do experiments. Um, but we, we've got a lot of really exciting experiments. One has just got completely halted by the pandemic. We're looking at some of the biomechanics of pregnancy, which I think are really, really important and understudied. We're looking at how shoes affect foot function, so testing some new biomechanical models. A lot of work on metabolism and inflammation, because as I talk about in the book, the major organ that produces molecules that fight inflammation are your muscles. It's not your white blood cells, it's your muscles. And so we're studying that. We're collaborating with researchers in Copenhagen to do some really fun experiments on that. So there's a lot of really fun and I think important things going on in the lab. And I'm really happy to, to just kind of bury my nose in those projects for a while. But I am thinking about another book because I like writing. You know, I think often as academics, we focus so much on trees and sometimes we, we don't think about forests. And I think that's what's fun about a book. It makes you think about the forest. So I find a modest amount, but not too much 
hopefully I will both work on trees as well as sometimes think about forests. I don't want to do so much forest thinking that I forget about the tree. There's some happy medium there. And I also think that there are some you know, key ideas that you know, need to get out to the general public. And I think we have you know, an obligation to society at large to think about how our work is relevant. So yeah, I'm thinking about another book, but it's still very inchoate at the moment. So we're very much talking about the benefits of the middle path in this episode. Or maybe, you know, doing both. <laughs> it's not really wow. a middle path. It's like, you know, having having the best of both worlds. <laughs> it's, it's not really the Goldilocks principle. It's like the multitasking principle. I just want to thank you. It's been a pleasure, both a pleasure to read the book and talk to you at long last. We've followed your work for a long time. So my pleasure. It's been fun for me. We really, really enjoyed it. And it's been lovely catching up with you. And thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. And oh, it's my pleasure. All right, well, take care of yourselves. Yep, you too. Bye-bye. All right, hope to see you in person one of these days again. One of these days. Yeah. All right, have a good All one. Right, take care.